Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Lips, a visiting fellow with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, who is the author of a new working paper, Reducing Inequality in Outside of School Learning, which is the subject of today's conversation. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So look, our listeners are used to us talking all the time about education savings accounts, which I have said for a long time are really unfortunately named because they are very often confused with higher education savings accounts like Cardell and 529s. Today, though, we'll actually be talking about 529s. And yep. we know that there have been some recent changes to 529 plans that have actually made them a vehicle for K-12 education, which they never really were before, in addition to higher ed. So perhaps just to set the stage, you could explain what 529 plans are and then walk our listeners through those recent changes and their implications. Sure. So since the late 1990s, Americans have been able to save for college tax-free using you know, 529 accounts. In general, the states across the country manage these savings accounts offering a range of investments that ultimately can be used for certain education expenses, uh, including college tuition. Over time, that has been expanded. In 2017, Congress expanded the allowable uses of 529 funds to also include K-12 tuition costs and also job training expenses. And these are in every single state except Wyoming, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. So federal policymakers have been increasing the utilities of the funds for K-12. How does that work? How do families open these accounts? How do they access them and use them for K-12 expenses? Well, the families can invest in a 529 even ahead of a child's birth. And many states, more than 30 states, offer certain state tax advantages for making a contribution to a 529 account. Many states have deductions, essentially, or in some cases, credits, which encourage parents or their family members to make that investment. And the idea is that over time, if those investments start early, a family could choose to use them on K-12 tuition when a child is in elementary or secondary school rather than during college. However, my view is that we should be looking a lot bigger in how we are funding these accounts and there's exciting programs around the country that are you know, making other investments into children's 529s. Yeah, and I want to hear more about those. But before we do, in your paper, you argue that with some further reforms, 529s could be a vehicle to reduce the achievement gap and, and really the opportunity gap between kids from rich and poor homes. So let's start by summarizing the problem. As you note, it's, it's not district school funding anymore. That gap has mostly been closed. You even note in your paper that in a majority of states, high poverty districts now spend more per pupil than lower poverty districts. So where is the gap? One of the big remaining areas of inequality in American education is outside of school learning opportunities. For decades, researchers have looked at the summer learning slide or the amount of learning losses that occur while children are out of school during summer vacation. In general, all children fall a little bit behind during summer break, but children from disadvantaged families you know, fall further and further behind. And some researchers have argued that the compounding effects of the summer learning slide is one of the big factors in the 
cumulative achievement gap that grows by high school. Basically, over time, you months of lost learning year after year, it results in big differences in the learning opportunities for disadvantaged kids and, and their affluent peers. And there's many reasons for this. Family background is one difference in children's outside of school learning opportunities. But one huge factor is family income. There's national data that shows that the children from upper income families or the top 20%, their parents spend around $9,000 annually on their educational enrichment expenses. Kids from the lowest quintile or the bottom 20%, their families spend about $1,000. Over time, this amounts to a, a massive spending gap on children's learning. While we've made great progress in narrowing resource gaps during the school day and school year, there's this vast gap in outside of school learning investment. So we're talking here about after school programs, trips to museums and you know, science centers, uh, and also especially as you noted, you know, uh, programming over the summer where you know, there's a RAND study that you cite in your paper, which shows that students lose skills over the summer, especially in math. Higher income kids actually gain over the summer in reading, whereas lower income kids show massive losses at the end of the summer that, as you note, accumulate year after year and have major implications. But this, this actually brings me to one of the reasons that I've been skeptical of 529 plans. When Congress a few years ago was considering these changes, I thought, you know, yeah, it's, it's welcome that they could use 529 plans uh, for K-12 education in addition to higher ed. But I had two major objections. I'll start with the first one, which is this issue. It's the equity issue. The benefits accrue primarily to those who can afford to put money into a 529 plan. And that doesn't do very much for lower income families. I mean, the, the tax benefits are, yeah, well, they're, they're on the savings. So you've, you've got to put up the principal, right? And you even note there, there's a, a 2015 Federal Reserve study that shows only 0.3% of households with incomes below the bottom half of the income percentiles as of 2013 have a 529 plan, right? So how is this going to help lower income families? Absolutely. And frankly, this is my reason for writing this. At FreeUp, our focus is on advancing policies that will help families living below median income or median wealth. And in my view, programs that exceed early investments in disadvantaged children's 529 accounts can address goals that have been longstanding goals for both the left and the right. On the left, there's this concern about wealth inequality and addressing from an early age the resources available to, to children for preschool, K-12, and post-secondary learning. And for uh, many on the, the right, uh, the idea of educational choice is this longstanding value that has been viewed as a way to address inequality. There's a growing interest, particularly among thought leaders on the left, to advance uh, programs and invest funds in children's savings accounts. There's a number of programs that already exist at the state and city level where government makes investments into children's savings accounts at an early age. And sometimes this is done by nonprofit organizations, other times directly by the government. A good example is in Maine, where every child in the state receives a $500 early investment in their child's 529 account, thanks to a nonprofit organization called the Alfund Scholarship Fund. These programs have been shown by academic researchers to lift families' expectations and even children's social-emotional capability in during their early years. 
so that actually leads to my my second objection, which was that these truly are savings plans, right? And so the benefits really accrue the longer you keep those investments in the account. So it seems that they are they're most useful for college. They're still somewhat useful for high school because you know, uh, especially if you invest early, like you know right around when the child is born, or even as you know, you could do it before the child is born. But each year earlier that you take the money out, the benefit has actually been reduced. So they're much less useful for K-12. Is that right? Or what am I missing? My view is that giving families these investments and control over greater education funding and the flexibility to use them when they feel they're most necessary is a great way to expand opportunity. If we were able to successfully begin investing in children's accounts at an early age and having those funds grow over time, putting the decision to the family of whether to use those funds uh, in elementary school or perhaps for a tutor along their educational journey through K-12 before high school is one important way to address outside of school learning inequalities or this, this family resource gap. I should say that part of the advantage of these accounts and this type of strategy for addressing wealth inequality while expanding parental choice is that it would actually achieve both the goals of the left and the right. As I mentioned, there's a a great interest among many to try and address wealth inequality and to promote college savings. As we know, there's also a strong interest and demonstrated value of promoting equal opportunity by expanding parental choice. In this case, vesting funds in children's savings accounts from an early age and making ongoing investments is, in my view, a promising way to advance both of these values, addressing wealth inequality and promoting greater parental choice in a way that may appeal to policymakers, particularly across the political spectrum, that more direct uh, state education savings accounts may not. That brings us to the evidence. So your your paper actually, as you noted, there are a bunch of states that have already started to do this kind of thing, and there's actually some research on it. So why don't you walk us through some of the research on how effective these, these programs are at actually expanding opportunity for lower income families? There's one very promising research study that was conducted by University of Washington researchers who created an experiment where about 1,300 children received early investments in children's savings accounts, while a control group of the same amount of children did not. And they studied how that affected their parents, uh, their families, their savings, and children's social and emotional capabilities through preschool. And what they found was that, not surprisingly, making these investments really helped in terms of financial savings for the children, but also improved their social and emotional capabilities at preschool, the researchers found that these benefits were on par with Head Start, which is a $11,000 a year program. And these were just $1,000 investments that the researchers were making into children's accounts. It's really, in my view, a proof of concept of how these types of programs, investing in children's savings accounts and 529s, can benefit families by lifting their expectations, helping them plan for college, and even giving kids an actual benefit and confidence in the classroom. The study that you cited showed that the children who received the 529 plan, and this was in Oklahoma, 
were 30 times more likely than the control group to actually have that 529 plan later on. And that the total amount of savings was six times more than the control group, which means that that some of the families, they just, okay, they probably didn't add or didn't add much to that initial investment, but it still, it grew over time. It was there, it was available. But it seemed that for some families, they were actually encouraged to put money into it over time, more so than if they hadn't been participating in the, in the program at all. So it actually, it seemed to incentivize savings. Absolutely. Academics have looked at this and the other programs that are seeding investments in children's 529s. And a common story that's told is that once families have these accounts, they start thinking about college. They, they start Im- imagining their kids going to college. And the idea of making another investment becomes something that they, they really consider doing. In Maine, for example, I mentioned the Alfund Scholarship Program. Families are also encouraged with an extra $100 contribution if they make a $25 contribution after their child's account is opened. So there's ways to structure these accounts that begin to give families greater incentive to save and also greater ownership of their children's educational funding. So Dan, what advice do you have for federal and state level policymakers who would like to use 529s as a vehicle to expand opportunity? Well, at the federal level, I think there's important work to be done to further expand these counts to make them more valuable to parents. Right now, we're seeing from the pandemic that many families are struggling to provide their children with basic learning opportunities. And if families had greater control over a share of their child's education funding or over control of a funded 529 account, they could be hiring tutors, they could be accessing online educational services, and they could be forming pandemic pods like families from upper income backgrounds are doing. So my strong recommendation for Congress would be looking at ways to expand the allowable uses to include other K-12 outside of school learning expenses like tutoring, like homeschooling, like pandemic pods, and also to be looking at how the federal tax code can be allowed to clarify to encourage that families and others can make solutions into disadvantaged kids' 529s. Promising work to be done to begin to create both incentives and funding streams to go into children's 529 accounts. States could follow the method of state scholarship tax credit programs by offering enhanced income tax or corporate income tax credits for contributions into these accounts. They could also be modifying school funding formulas to steer a portion of a child's fund into a 529. Imagine if parents were hopping between two schools, two public schools, and one of the public schools was able to say, in addition to attending our school, we will reserve $1,000 of your child's per pupil expenditure to go into a 529 account, which you can use next summer for tutoring if your child needs that, or save for college to defer those future costs. At FreeOp, we're focused on finding new policies that promote equal opportunity and benefit children from low-income families. I've been working on education choice policies for the past 20 years. I was involved in the early work of developing education savings accounts or state-funded education savings accounts as a new and better vehicle to promote parental choice than 
vouchers and tax credits, which were the, the key vehicles that were used at the time. In 2005, I proposed that idea as a new way to try and expand choice. In my view, allowing families to have access to greater funds through children's savings accounts over their entire lives, beginning at birth and extending through to college and lifelong learning is the natural evolution of the school choice movement, moving from an effort to try and give families choices between schools, but to give families and parents and ultimately students control of, over their education resources over the course of their life. In the past, we've been thinking about giving parents control over where their child goes to school. What I think we need to be looking at is not just where they go to school, but how their funds are spent and when their funds are spent over the course of their life. You know, by investing in children's savings accounts and giving all families access to 529s, you know, we're no longer just trying to help kids you know, choose between schools. We're allowing families to plan ahead over the course of their child's life and early adolescence how to best educate that child. I think it's a, a, a promising option for expanding equal opportunity, addressing these you know, really challenging circumstances we've seen in vast disparities in outside of school learning, which have been exposed by the pandemic, and truly addressing the achievement gap over time. My view of, uh, over the next few months, we're likely to see a, a big shift in the national political outlook. And as the national school choice movement begins to think about how to continue to advance you know, choice in a, a period when uh, we may see a much bluer national political map, my recommendation is that investing in children's 529s and both uh, getting at this problem for the left of addressing wealth inequality for low-income children while continuing to expand parental choice may be the best way to advance the interests of school choice over the next decade. Thanks so much for having me, and I really appreciate what you do at EdChoice and the opportunity to be with you and your listeners today. Well, Dan, thank you for joining us. Our guest today has been Dan Lips, visiting fellow with FreeOp, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And again, the paper we discussed today was reducing inequality in outside of school learning. Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Ideas series, please send them to media at edchoice.org. And please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at EdChoice. And don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.